0: Amen. Well, this morning, I actually want to continue uh, running in the same direction that we were running last week. And uh, to do so, I actually want to pick up by reading a parable that Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 25. So if you can look at this with me, we're going to start off in verse one. It says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, obviously, we know here in the church that the bridegroom uh, in this parable represents Jesus. And then it says in verse two, it says, five of them were foolish, or as another translation puts it, five of them were foolish and ill prepared. If you can make note of that, they were ill prepared. And then it says, they were five were wise. In verse 3 it says the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any extra oil with them. And it says the wise ones, however, took extra oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. And it says the foolish ones said to the wise, "'Give us some of, your, some of your oil. "'Our lamps are going out.'" In other words, we're unprepared for this moment. And then they said, "'No, they may not be enough for both us and you. "'Instead, go to those who sell oil "'and buy some for yourself.' "'But while they were on their way to buy the oil, "'the bridegroom arrived, "'and the virgins who were ready, "'the virgins who were prepared, "'went in with him to the wedding banquet, "'and the door was shut.'" And it says, later the others, in other words, those foolish virgins also came. And they started banging on the door. Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. This also means it's too late. Then it says in verse 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. I want to say that again. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now listen, I believe the point that Jesus was trying to make here in this parable is easily seen in verse 13. And it's this, is that there's going to come a day when He as the bridegroom returns uh, for His bride and only those who are prepared for His second coming will participate in that coming wedding feast. Now, if that is true, then it also means the opposite opposite is true, which means that those who are unprepared, those who are the foolish virgins, those who uh, don't have enough oil to trim their lamps, or we could even say those who didn't think it was important enough to have their lives in order, guess what? They will not participate in that wedding feast. Now, I think this morning when we hear that portion of Scripture, it's really important for us to remember that this parable is more than just a story. In other words, Jesus just didn't gather a few people and said, okay, guys, let me tell you a cute story. What what he actually did is he used a parable to describe a future event that was going to take place. Now, we know this is true because of the vision that John saw and wrote about in Revelation 19.7. He said this, he said, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude saying, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb, because the marriage of Jesus, the marriage of our bridegroom has come. And it says, and His bride, that's us guys, the church has prepared herself. Now, once again, like we said last week, how have we prepared ourselves? We know, according to Ephesians chapter five verse 27, that we have prepared ourselves to be ones who are without spot or wrinkle, ones who are holy and without blemish. So with those uh, three passages in mind, I just want to ask you again a few questions. The first one is this: is that, do we truly believe that this event will take place one day? Like, have we decided in our heart if this is just some fairy tale or if this is true? And I think if we're here today and we say we believe that's true, then the next question has to be, do we truly believe that that's the kind of bride that Jesus desires and that Jesus is going to come back for? Like, is he going to come back once again for a bride that's all dirty or for a bride that's spotless? The Bible is clear he's coming for a bride that is spotless which so that means if those two things are true then you and I are left with no other choice but to ask ourselves this are we personally preparing ourselves for that day see what i'm getting at this morning is is i'm hoping that we will take an honest evaluation of our lives and actually see if our current spiritual condition resembles the unprepared virgins who Jesus called foolish or the prepared virgins Jesus called wise now, listen, before you and I automatically give ourselves an answer, I want you to consider something that R.T. Kendall wrote in one of his books. He wrote this concerning the foolish virgins and their lack of preparation. Here's what he said. We'll throw up on the screen. He says, Imagine taking a lamp with you, but not taking sufficient oil. What would it mean? You have what appears to be needed. In other words, you have a lamp, but you don't have enough oil to keep the lamp burning. It says, have you made provision for yourself to make sure your lamp will stay burning? See, I think maybe if I can pause there for a minute, we we all get this. Like, man, we, we have furnaces in our house, but man, if we don't have the oil that we need, then guess what? That furnace does us no good. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on and he makes it practical and shows us how to get oil in our lamps. He says, how much praying do you plan to do this year? What kind of Bible reading plan do you have for the year? How deep is your commitment? Or do you think, oh, I'll be fine. Thank you very much. In other words, I don't have any need for all of that. I'll do it I'll do a little bit. I'll do it a little bit when i got time. And then he says, this, says, if so, in other words, if that's your thinking, then I say to you with the deepest respect, you are a fool. He said, do not trust yourself so much that you say, I'm going to be fine. Do you dare to go out into your day without having spent 30 minutes on your knees? Do you make sure that your Bible reading is done, even if nothing else happens that day? Now, let me pause here for a moment because I know our human nature. I know my automatic response to those things when I begin to, to questions, when I get, begin to be challenged, is to simply do this. It's begin to make excuses for myself about how busy my schedule is and, and uh, you know, all the responsibilities to somehow to justify my lack of intimacy with Jesus. Are you all with me today? But, but listen to this dose of reality. He says, when the midnight cry comes, in other words, when Jesus returns, you won't be thinking, well, I was always on time for work, and I got that pay raise I really wanted. I got that opportunity that meant so much. Then he says this, do you realize how much these things will mean to you then? In other words, all the things that we worry about when Jesus comes back, do we really Do we really realize how much those things will mean to us at that moment? And he says, never think that you are the one who is going to be okay without a connection with God. Make provision. In other words, be prepared. Have things in order. And then he took it another step when he wrote this later in the chapter in Matthew 25, 7. This is what he said. He says, then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The word trim there actually means in the Greek language that they put things in order. I think that's ironic with all the things we've been talking about for a while. And he says, it was a sense of moral consciousness, a sudden realization of duty, and a return to discipline. And he says, the trouble with many Christians today is that they are not disciplined. In other words, they're not preparing themselves. He says, you may manage to get to work on time, but you read your Bible only if it's convenient and if you can get up on time. You make sure that your bills are paid, but for some reason praying, well, you have good intentions to get around to it. You are disciplined when it comes to your wallet, your pocketbook, and anything that concerns your lifestyle. But when it comes to spiritual things, you have no discipline. Jesus was giving us this parable to challenge us. I don't know about you, but it's pretty sobering to hear all that. Yes? He says this, what has the Christian faith done to change your life and your lifestyle? And then he says, how disciplined are you? How disciplined are you? You see, I believe the overall point here is pretty clear is that when it comes to our preparation we need to recognize that all the things that faithfully distract us all those things that eat up so much of our time if we're being honest those are the things that uh, make us have spots and blemishes that we need to understand that guess what there's going to come a day when this life is all said and done and it's over and we're standing in front of the king of kings and we'll realize at that point all of those things won't mean a thing Right? And it's like R.T. said, it's like the reality is that we tend, as people, to be disciplined in all of the areas that have little eternal value. Like, we don't miss our favorite TV show. We're pretty disciplined. We don't miss our workout. We don't miss our ball team playing. We don't miss all these things that we value, but the truth is, have little value in eternity. And the problem is, is we're disciplined in all those areas, but we're not really disciplined in the essential areas, And so all I'm saying today just up top is this, is if you and I truly believe that Jesus is going to come back, if he's going to return as much as we say we do, then why don't we just go ahead and invest in and get disciplined in the most important uh, area in this life and in the next, which is our relationship with Jesus. Amen. Listen, I think uh, because you and I really in our hearts, we want to be a prepared uh, part of that bride. And because you and I want to sure up the things that we're talking about. Like, how can you not hear some of that and not be convicted in some way and go, man, I need to change some things. And I just want to say to you today, because we have a heart that really wants to walk with God. We want to sure up of those things. That's important that we pray that prayer that we've been praying. Once again, let's read it out of Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Where we say, search me, oh God, right? And know my heart. Let God know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. I'm going to pause there for a second. Have you noticed in this life that there's not a lot of things that necessarily that, uh, how can I say this? That, that, That we get caught up on everything that offends everybody else and we think very little about what offends him. And what we're talking about today is not necessarily what everybody else thinks is cool and everybody else thinks is acceptable. We're talking about, no, 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 God, would you point out anything in me that offends you? Right? And God, when you point it out, would you lead me along the path of everlasting life? In other words, it doesn't stop there. Now, here's why I like that prayer so much. It's simply because of this. It's because I think this is one of the uh, most significant prayers in the Bible that actually postures our heart to hear from God for ourselves. Like so often we pray because we need something or we pray because we want to tell somebody else something. But, but this prayer is like, no, 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 forget all of that. God, would you speak to me about me? Yeah. Right. And, and what I love about this prayer is it actually shows uh, the incredible relationship that we can have with God. Here's why I say that, because when we begin to pray that prayer, we're actually telling God, God, that we trust you are really the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, that you're really the one that wrote out in your book all of our days before we lived one of them. God, that we really believe that you're the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, we really believe that you are who you say you are when you promise to finish the good work that you began in us. In other words, what I'm saying is, is we begin to pray that we understand that, guess what? That God, you created us and you loved us. And because you're the one who created us, you know what's in us that doesn't belong in us. You know, the only thing I kind of give you to describe what I'm talking about here is this, is Is last service in my mind. I was picturing a woman in the kitchen and she's making a big old pot of soup and she's throwing in this seasoning and that seasoning and this seasoning. And then she walks off. Maybe she's got to go deal with the kids. Maybe she's got to go, uh, I don't know, fold some clothes, whatever. She does something else. And then she comes back in and she does the old taste test and she realizes, you know, there's something in there that I didn't put in there. Like, Like my husband rolled through the kitchen and he decided to throw in his favorite seasoning in the middle of that and he just messed it up. Right. And all I'm saying is this is when you begin to pray that prayer, you're saying, God, what ingredients are in my life that you didn't put in there? Like what's in me that you didn't design me for that, you know, where you have me going in life and the purpose and the plan that you have for me. This doesn't need to be long. It's there illegally. Right. And so what you're saying is, is God, I trust you that you love me enough to show me. So God, I'm asking you, please come show me. And this is the cool part when he shows you, it's the, actually the other part of the refining process where we kind of landed last week. And it's this, as is, 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 is we come to the spot, and we go, man, what am I supposed to do with that now? And the answer is simply this, it's the other part of the process, it's repent. Yeah. It's to repent. Now, now remember, guys, what, what good does it do for God to reveal things to us if we don't do anything with us? Right? He said that he would point something out and then he would lead us to the way of everlasting. What ensures us that we get led to the way of life? Right? It's simply this. It's that we repent. Or as I said last week, this is where the gift of repentance really comes into play. And so let me maybe pause here for a second and say this in case there's something in anybody's head or heart. You know, there's, there's basically subgroups of the church today that are believing and preaching a lie that simply says this that we don't have to repent because God is a God of grace, right? And I want you to know that they actually have that completely backwards because the truth is, is we repent because God is a God of grace, Right? To understand that in our own hearts, that, God, you know, if we thought God was angry and He was mad at us and all that, then we wouldn't come to Him. But the fact that He does love us and the fact that He does have grace, He does have mercy, and He is willing to receive our repentance, guess what? We come to Him. Amen? And it's through that process that God uses to refine us and purify our hearts. Because at the end of the day, what we're really saying with all this, is God, you said in your word, blessed her, those who are pure in heart, for they shall, shall see you. And God, I want to see you. So would you purify anything in me so I can just have an encounter with you? Amen? Amen. Amen. So let me, let me do this. Let me give you really quick five, uh, five reasons that you and I should actually value repentance. Because once again, in the church world today, it's almost like we've lost Uh, the significance and the importance of repentance, not only in our corporate lives, but also our personal lives. And I'm trying to tell you today why we need to value it, okay? Why we need to, if I could put different words on it, be quick to repent. So the first one is this, and it's the most obvious one, is because we should value it because it makes us pure. Because it makes us pure. Once again, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? But here's the verse I want to attach to it. 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sin... If we repent, right? He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Watch this next part because most of us typically stop at the forgiving part. And then he says this, and purify us from all unrighteousness. And purify us from all unrighteousness. Now I want you to know today I'm intentionally focusing on the purifying part of repentance over the forgiving part of repentance. Potentially, right? And here's why. It's because most of the time when, when we stop, when we're the kind of Christians that read that, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, and we stop there, what we're really saying is this, is God, I feel really bad about this, so I'm coming to you because I don't want to feel this way, and I'm going to say really quick, God, I'm sorry, and I believe you're going to forgive me, and I am you're going to forgive me, you're going to let me off the hook on that thing. So then, guess what? I feel like I have permission to go wallow in that same mud again for another time, and I'm going to call it repentance. Right, And I want you to know that's not repentance. Right. See, see, repentance, when you actually begin to look at that, you understand that, yes, there's a forgiveness part, but there's also the purifying part. And that word purify there actually means that He consecrates us or sets us apart from sin. And so there's that side, guess what? It's not about our conscience feeling better, but it's really about this. God, thank you that when I came and I repented, you lovingly forgave me, right? And we're so thankful for that mercy and that grace. But guess what? I realize that you have set me apart from that sin, that you have broken its power off my life. And now I'm going to go live a life and I have the ability in you to stay away from that as far as I need to be. Am I making sense? So listen, let me maybe say this, because I realize that when I begin to talk about A lot of times our uh, our approach to sin, which is really flippant, and and our our approach to to, uh, repentance, it's easy for people to get bent out of shape because that's what they do. Right? In other words, they just throw those quick prayers and keep doing the same thing. And and I want us to see this maybe in a different light today. I want to give you an example. Hopefully it'll hit home that you'll go, okay, I'm seeing something now I've never seen before. So if you can't imagine with me this. Let's say you come home tomorrow. Let's say you're married if you're single in here. Uh, but you, you come home and you, you know, whatever. You walk in the living room and there's your spouse. or sitting on the couch and, uh, and they look up at you and go, can you sit down? I have something I need to confess to you today. Okay. And so you sit down and then they begin to tell you that for the last two years that they've been having an affair with another person. And, and, but they want you to know that even though they've been having an affair, they, they feel really bad about it. Like, don't miss that. They feel really bad about it, and, and they want you to please forgive them. Now, obviously, that, that's like getting hit by a truck, right? That kind of news. But, but you, you go and you spend time with God, and you, and you pray, and you go, you know what? I, I have value in this relationship. I love this person, so I'm going to forgive them, right? And you say, okay, we're going to move forward. We're, we're going to get through this. And then fast forward six weeks, you come home again from work, and they're sitting there on the couch again, and they say, i got a confession to make. You go, oh boy, here we go again. And they say, look, I've been having another affair, but, but I feel really bad about it. So I need you to forgive me. Would you forgive me? You forgive them. Fast forward another six weeks. I have another confession to make. I'm having an affair. And again, and again, and again. Are you getting the picture here? My, my point is this, is, is listen, if that was you, how long would you actually believe that that person has a repentive heart? Like you would know, man, they're really not sorry. They're just feeling guilty and they want to get something off their chest. But they're really set. They're going to keep doing what they want to do. Right? And I just think this, if we can bring this over to the kingdom of God real quick, it's like, how come we're unwilling to accept something like that, but we expect God to? God, I'm feeling really bad about this. We need to talk. God, i got another confession to make. Am I making sense to you guys? But yet in our hearts, we know we're really going to go do that same thing again. I want you to know that if we have that kind of attitude, man, we're really missing the point right? And, and please understand today, I'm not talking about being perfect because we're never going to get there. But what I am talking about is simply this, is that we need to begin to look at the Bible and the gospel and Jesus, right? And we need to begin to understand this thing of repentance isn't, a, isn't some funny games. It's something we need to take serious, right? Because far too often we as Christians, uh, Christians treat His mercy and His grace as something that's just whatever, not that big of a deal. Yeah. Are y'all awake today? So if we can add something there, we'll move on to the next point because I feel like I'm getting too much in your business. Here we go. We'll throw up the screen. Write this down. True repentance isn't just about coming clean. It's about getting clean and staying clean. It's not just about coming clean. It's about getting clean and staying clean. This leads us to the second reason we should value repentance. It's because of this, and these are so connected. It's because it enables us to turn. It enables us to turn. Let me give you some biblical foundation for this point. Look at these two verses with me. This is one we quote a lot, especially in prayer meetings. uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and do what? Turn from their wicked ways and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's easy for people to go, well, that's Old Testament. Well, let me bring you to the New Testament under the new covenant. Hebrews 6, 1. He says this, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Then begins to tell you what repentance is from dead works, a turning from dead works and of faith toward God. That we turn from dead works, we turn from sin, and we face God, right? So I'm saying this because it would appear like God defines the complete act of repentance as the turning away from our sin and ultimately moving towards Him. And so I'm going to repeat what I said last week, hopefully that'll stick to us, is that somehow along the line, if we look back at our life and the times we've repented, and we could actually say, man, if, if, I, if my repentance did not create, if it did not cultivate a greater measure of intimacy with the Father, right? If it didn't draw us closer, then maybe we need to question if it was true repentance at all. Right. right? Because it would seem like when you read the Bible, that repentance is marked by one thing. It's called life change. Listen, the third reason we should value repentance is this. is because it makes us useful. I, I will say this. As a pastor, one of the most disappointing things is seeing people who want to be used by God and they run around and tell everybody that they want to do great things for God and their lives are a train wreck because they've opened a thousand doors to the devil. So li, li, listen to this verse really quick and let it sink deep. This is why we want to have pure hearts and clean lives. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 19-21 It says, but God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription. Here's what it says. The Lord knows those who are his, and all who belong to the Lord must do what? Must turn away from evil. In other words, we hate what is evil, and we love what is good, and he's the only thing that's good. Amen? This says in verse 20, in a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions and the cheap ones are for everyday use. Then it says this in verse 21, it says, if you keep yourself pure, that's the goal, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. In other words, if you honor God, he'll honor you. And it says, your life will be clean. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use for every good work. Like gang, don't we want that? Like, in other words, don't we want to be, have a life that we're out on the job site, if we're at work, if we're running at the Walmart, whatever, the grocery store, wherever somebody gives us a call, that our lives are pure So much at that moment that if God needs to use us and move through us as a vessel, then guess what? He doesn't have to filter it through a whole pile of crap that's in us, but he can move clean through us and he can say what he needs to say and speak what he wants to speak to release life and to release heaven over somebody else. Right? And I'll say this. Don't ever think you're going to be a soul winner if people don't see Jesus in your life. Amen? Amen. So the fourth reason we should value repentance is this, is it brings relational healing. It brings relational healing. I want you to take note that the first three I mentioned today deal strictly between you and God, and this one deals between you and your fellow man. Okay, and so it simply says this in James 5, 6. It says, therefore confess your sins to one another. Man, we don't do that often, do we? Confess your sins to one another, your fault steps, your offenses, and pray for one another. Why, that you may be healed and restored. You know, can I can I just maybe throw out there to you today that it's possible that we are carrying unnecessary offenses and bitterness and anger and depression, and, uh, and because we're unwilling to confess our sins to one another. Like just maybe we're, we're fighting fear and anxiety and worry and all these things uh, simply because we haven't been willing to have tough conversations where we confess our sins to one another and we begin to deal with the, the uh, difficult moments in relationships. Everybody please take note what I'm about to say. The closer you are to someone, the more this will need to happen. The more you value the relationship, the more this will need to happen because there's more opportunities for hurt to happen. Right. And so it's just simply this, that man, what if we actually said, you know what, I'm sorry. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Right. And you begin to repent. When I said that, I, I didn't mean to do that. Could you please forgive me? And I just believe if we would have those kind of conversations, even say, you know, when you said that you hurt me. then guess what? That it would begin to shut the devil's door in our lives. And we'd walk in greater measures of victory than what we currently do. Yeah. Right. Amen. Sometimes uh, it's not the enemy that's our worst enemy. It's ourselves. Amen? So, all right, so it brings us to the fifth reason. And I have to be honest with you. For, for weeks now, I've been like, okay, we're, we're saying things, all right? Like, like, we're saying things. But this is probably the thing that's grabbed my heart the most. This is kind of why I've been preaching everything I've been preaching, because I've been having these conversations with God. There's things I want to see God do, and, and, it, and it landed me here. And I'm trying to say it to you, because I'm hoping as a church, we'll actually respond to God, and we'll see God begin to do what only He can do. Is everybody with me? So it simply says this, the fifth one, the reason you and I should value repentance is because it brings, uh, it brings uh, refreshing. It brings refreshing. In fact, let me go ahead and read a verse to you before I tell you a story. It says this in Acts 3.19. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Great verse, yeah? yeah. So here's what I've been realizing is you know for years i have seen uh, the negative effect that an individual sin has on others right in other words it's uh, it's really simple let's say if if one spouse uh, one spouse whatever gets offended and hurt it definitely affects the other right um i can give you another story years ago i i came to church and i was sitting in the youth rooms when i was youth pastoring in north carolina and i was uh, basically standing in the foyer and a father walked over to me and said pastor can you please talk to my son today and, uh, and so I said, sure, that's cool. This guy never asked me for anything. So I was like, man, absolutely, we'll, we'll go talk. So we went to my office and we sat down and his son was sitting there and he was sitting there. And he began to tell me how his son had been struggling uh, with pornography and, and the dad found the stuff he was looking at. And he wanted me to somehow fix the problem in that moment with his son, to somehow uh, help him understand the severity of the moment, to get him squared away and all those things. And so the dad is talking. In the middle of all that talking, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and I simply looked over the dad. I said, I need you to be honest with me. Are you looking at pornography as well? And he put his head down. The answer was yes. And here's why. Y'all please don't miss this. Because as the priest of the home, the decisions he chose to make to open up his own heart to the impurities and basically just lust, what it did is it opened the door for his son to fall in the same trap. Why? Because there's a spiritual principle your sin will affect others. Yeah. That's why there's no such thing as private sin or hidden sin. Someone is always affected. Right. I mean, so here's what I realized the other day. That if that is the case, then guess what? That also means... If someone's sin can affect someone in a negative way, then someone's repentance can affect someone in a positive way. Right? And so, man, if we could maybe grab a hold of that. That's why, for example, once again, if a husband uh, humbles himself and goes to his wife and says, I'm sorry. If he goes to one of his kids and says, I'm sorry for what I did. Then guess what? Healing comes. Their repentance will affect the others in a positive way. And so let me give you a story uh, on the grander scheme of things. I, I actually sat at my kitchen table the other day and I read uh, this story, and I, you know, I've read it many times over the years. Uh, but I sat down and I read actually a sermon by a man named Duncan Campbell that gave the accounts of what I'm about to tell you. And Jen was. In the kitchen. I think she was talking to someone on the phone. I was like, man, I got to get out of the room. And I went in my closet and I just sat down in my closet, in my bedroom, and I just wept and wept and wept and cried because my heart is like, God, will you please do this where we live? Amen. So please listen to me. Here's the story. Basically, in the 1940s, the late 1940s, the people who lived on the Isle of Lewis, that's the uh, northwest island off of Scotland, it says that, that they were lost in spiritual darkness and so much so that the church leaders decided to do something about it. And what they did is they put an article in the local newspaper and they asked it to be sent and that the Christian community would actually read it in hopes that they would examine their own spiritual condition. It's kind of what we've been doing lately and that they would pray for God to send repentance before it was too late, right? The gift of repentance. So, as you can expect, most people uh, got the newspaper, read the article, and they ignored it. But there was two sisters named Peggy and Christine who were in their 80s, and they took it to heart. And they began to pray two days a week, every Tuesday and every Friday, from 10 p.m. to 3 o'clock in the morning. For weeks, basically, they took hold of God on the behalf of people who lived in their region. And it was during one of those nights after they had been praying, I don't know, for weeks, for months, uh, one of those nights in prayer, God gave Peggy a vision of a church overflowing with young people. Now, if you can understand the magnitude of this, it was said during that time that the young people compared going to church as one uh, basically contracting a plague. So there was no young people in the church. Nobody was getting saved. And here's this woman, God gave her a vision of a church overflowing with young people. And so what she did is she actually went to the, the, close, uh, the closest minister and she actually told him the vision that God gave. And he simply said this, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> and so Peggy told him that he needed to gather the elders and the deacons in the church, and they need to begin to pray. And she made an agreement with him. She said, look, my sister and I will pray every Tuesday and every Friday, and we expect that we'll do that at our house, and you guys can go do that. So they started gathering in a barn. Every Tuesday and every Friday, they would pray from 10 o'clock at night to 3 o'clock in the morning, and they began begin to cry out to God and ask God to send rain on a dry and weary land. And it was about a month and a half into that prayer, uh, those prayer gatherings, uh, one man, one young deacon stood up and he, and he took his Bible and he flipped to Psalms 24 and he read aloud to the group of people and he read this, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in this holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Only he who has not lifted up a soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. And he says, He shall receive the blessing of the Lord. And he closed the Bible and then he said this, He said, it seems to me just so much humbug to be waiting as we are waiting, praying as we are praying, if we ourselves are not right before God. And then he lifted his hands to heaven and he said this, God, are my hands clean? God is my heart pure. And the story says this, is that when he said that the power of God hit him and he to the ground, he went slain in the spirit, power of God hit him. And the other guys that were in the room staring, you got to understand, these people were Presbyterians. They knew nothing of this kind of stuff. As the other people saw what happened, they threw their hands up in the air. God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And they said this, please listen to this. They said, it is said that at that moment a power was let loose that shook the heavens. And it released a strange awareness of God that only gripped the entire community, but it launched a genuine revival throughout not just the island of Lewis, but throughout the Hebridean islands, literally the move of God. And it didn't last a week. It didn't last uh, a month. It actually went on for three years. You know, listen to this. God came in such a powerful presence that even the worst of sinners fled from their sins at all hours of the day, calling on God to save them. People were getting saved on their fishing boats and in their fields. People who were lying asleep in bed would become so convicted they would wake up to get on their knees and cry out for mercy. Weavers were struck down in trances and got saved at their looms. Bars were closed, never to open again. Jails were unused because there was no crime. Churches were so packed every day at 7 p.m., 10 p.m., midnight, 3 a.m., with more people outside praying in the fields than inside because they couldn't get in. Now hearing this, to me, the most incredible part out of all the amazing things that God did, the incredible thing about the Hebrity revival was this, is that 75% of the people that got born again, got born again outside of a church. They never heard a message, never heard a sermon. God just came. Now listen, it was said this, it said that the revival turned a place which was as hard as rocks. I'm like, God, we live in Rockport and Rockland. And out there they, on that island, they call it the rock. Are you hearing this, Jesus? So a place which was as hard as rocks and as barren as the wilderness has been transformed by the power of God into a garden of the Lord. I want to ask you today, man, to hear all that, it's easy to get pumped, but we have to stop and go, Why? Why? Why did God move that way? I believe it was because a handful of men had the courage to simply pray a search me kind of prayer. God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And with what God showed them, they begin to repent. The thing that marked that revival, yes, it was souls getting saved, but it was repentance. With people coming and crying out, is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Are y'all hearing me today? Listen, why am I telling you guys all this? Because I think as a church, we are comfortable in our our spiritual condition. We're comfortable in our lack of prayer. We're comfortable in our lack of the word. We're comfortable in our half-hearted worship. We're we're just comfortable in our sin, right? There's things that used to convict us that don't convict us anymore. And they should convict us. Because our hearts are getting cold. In other words, go all the way back to the top. What's happened is, is we're realizing that his his the the time lap between his resurrection and his return is a little longer than what we thought and so we're getting drowsy we're getting sleepy and we're not taking it that important we forgot that he said look we need to stay alert we need to stay awake we need to be prepared for his coming right so so i'm just saying this man the church I believe we made a grave mistake and it's this everybody please hear what I'm saying I'm not trying to beat you up I'm just trying to get us a little bit of an awareness of our spiritual condition in light of eternity right listen I think so often as the church we've sat back and we've acted like man if those people those unbelievers those unsafe people if they're will if they would be willing to get their junk right and quit doing the things they're doing then our nation would be better I I want you to know you're looking in the wrong direction Right, If we would actually stop and understand as believers, guess what? The world doesn't have the keys. We have the keys. And the keys that will unlock the move of God, guess what, is prayer and repentance. You can't have one without the other. They're the power twins. Amen? Amen. So I want to read this verse again. Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins, your sins, not somebody else's, so your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Where? In your life, in your family's life, in this church, in this region, in this state. Right? Let God move. If we, if we really, listen, I've heard more, more than one Mainer say, you know, they say as Maine goes, the nation goes. Well, let's see. Right. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. Let's put our money where our mouth is and let's go seek Jesus. Amen? Amen. Father, I'm asking you today, God, in the name of Jesus, God, that you would grant us with the gift of repentance. Lord, I'm asking God that you would come. God, even in the midnight hour, God, you would begin to stir us. God, I'm asking God that you would awake our hearts. And Lord, I'm asking God, when you awake our hearts, God, that we would actually begin to believe your word. And we would actually begin to hate what is evil and love what is good. That we would actually begin to desire to have clean hands and a pure heart. And so, Lord, I'm just asking today, God, like that young deacon in 1949, God, when he lifted his hands to heaven and said, you know, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? God, I pray that we begin to ask that. God, that we would want to do we have clean hands and a pure heart or are our hands filthy and is our heart nasty from the things of the world? Lord, would you come with your blood and would you come with your grace and your love? And would you begin to clean us up again? But, Lord, I'm asking God for a conviction, God, that doesn't, that doesn't lift, a burden that doesn't lift. Lord, I'm asking that we'd be quick to repent because, God, we just want to know you. So, Lord, today we just simply say this. Lord, we recognize we can hear all this and we could do nothing and just say this is the way we are. God, or we could sit back and say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to work harder and strive harder to be better. God, I'm not asking for a performance mentality today. Father, or we could simply say this, Lord, we need a greater measure of intimacy with you. So Lord, would you be so kind to lead us to the secret place again and again and again. God, would you give us the discipline that we need to go meet with you. And Lord, as we go in there and we lay our heart bare before you, God, would you reveal what needs to be revealed. But God, would you also clean what needs to be cleaned. And God, would you also consecrate what needs to be consecrated. Lord, our lives are yours. You bought it with a price. We didn't purchase our own lives. You purchased us. And so, Lord, our lives are yours, God, for you to do whatever you want to do. We just simply say, God, we want to be of use. And Lord, we simply just stop for a moment. God, we say, Lord, we need you in our region. God, we need you in our region. God, our region is so hard and so callous and so cold towards you. But, Lord, we believe, God, that your presence, that strange awareness of your presence, God, can begin to literally, like a shot wave, can begin to move throughout this region. So, God, we thank you for every town, God, in every little peninsula, God, every island that's around us. God, we ask for an awakening of your spirit, an awakening, God, that people would see Jesus. Lord, would you save souls? God, you said in your word, God, that we could ask for the lost as our inheritance. God, and we simply say, God, would you move from the north, the south, the east, and the west? God, and would you save souls? Would you sweep them in the kingdom? God, we're believing for an outpouring. God, would you do it? God, would you do it in our day, in our hour? I'm encouraging you to simply say, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? Because we can leave this place and go, well, that's just another message. Let's move on. Or we can say, God, I need you to do something. Let's let him do something. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for encouragement in your walk with God and to receive updates on events happening at The Anchor. Have a great week and God bless.